Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person by faith accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Devarim, Words. The address is Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 22. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 3rd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim VeNatan Lanuet Torato. Baruch atah Adonai Notein HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, welcome to a most wonderful book in Moshe's set of five, Deuteronomy, or Devarim, as we say in Hebrew. Now, the literal word Devarim is the plural form of the word Devar, and the word Devar means word, or it means thing. The word Devar is a masculine word, and so whenever we have a plural ending to a masculine word in Hebrew, we get the familiar I-M sound, the E-M sound. That's the normal way to um, make a singular masculine word into a plural. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, that's how Hebrew operates. Um, I'm not going to go, in, go into each detail of this particular parasha, which, which, to be honest with you, actually serves as a recap of the major events of the, the previous uh, book, um, Sefer Bimidbar, the book of Numbers. If you'll recall, the children of Israel had wandered around the desert for 38 or 40 years, as it, as it is referred to. And uh, Moshe is really, starting in the last few chapters of Bimidbar, he's, he's recalling the places they've gone, the events they've uh, participated in, and he is really you know, preparing them to go in now. I mean, we're talking about the second generation, obviously, since the first generation experienced God's judgment due to their lack of faith, their disobedience. Uh, and so God judged them, and they, they died. They died in the wilderness. And so I'm not going to go into each detail. If you'd like, however, um, to read the Torah portion, I do recommend that you read it um, so you can see where they went and the, the different places they, they um, stopped at 
and uh, some of the uh, events that took place and um, how they wandered around the mountain for a while and then they, they would they would uh, encounter a, you know a, a people group and God would either tell them pass through don't mess with these people because you're not going to get their land or God would say go ahead and go to war with them because I'm going to give you their land you know various details as they were going from here to there in my opinion even though I'm not going into the details in this uh, commentary um, in my opinion, it, go, it just goes to show, even in God's judgment, His Spirit still leads us. Remember how Moshe pleaded with God that if if God didn't go with him, that it wasn't worth going at all? And at one point in time, God was fairly upset, un, uh, upset enough to say that he wasn't going to go with them. But Moshe interceded, God um, acquiesced, and indeed did go with them. And so even though they wandered for 38 or 40 years in the wilderness... Um, the text talks about how that their shoes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell, as it were. And besides, we're talking about, what, 2 million, 3 million plus people, plus cattle, livestock. And even though they're wandering around the desert in judgment, God still provided for their basic needs, their food, their water, um, the shelter during the day, shelter from the sun. Um, and, and we're talking about 40 years, so they, they experienced all the seasonal changes that wandering through the desert might entail. You know, the extreme cold during the winter, um, God provided warmth for them. Uh, he even provided them a pillar of cloud by day so that they could follow along, and, uh, and as well as being covered by the cloud so that they wouldn't get scorched in the hot desert sun. And he provided them a pillar of fire by night so that they could navigate by night and still be able to get around. God is a wonderful God. I, I just can't help but but um, um, uh, uh, bring out this feature again, over and over again. Even when God judges, he's merciful. And yet we know that the Torah teaches that mercy wins out over judgment. All the more reason to fall on our face and worship him and to seek his mercy. Especially when we are experiencing the uh, the punishment of God. When do we experience the punishment? Oy vey, when don't we experience the punishment, we might ask ourselves. Well, if you're one of those people who's always in trouble, then perhaps maybe you are always experiencing the punishment of God. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is for people who generally go through life serving God, doing what they're supposed to do with a proper attitude, and do their best under the uh, guidance of the Spirit, of course, to to um, have a healthy relationship with God, to have a, a viable relationship with one another. But you know what? From time to time, even people like these um, stumble. You know, the um, the, uh, the the preacher, uh, the Shlomo, Melek Shlomo, um, Kohelet, um, uh, he talks about, uh, not in the book of Kohelet, I'm sorry, in the, it's actually in the book of, of uh, Mishlei, Proverbs. But he talks about how that a, um, a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. And so, you know what, we're going to fall from time to time. And when we fall, God has demonstrated over and over again that even though he has to punish us for the deeds that we do, because um, we, there must be a, uh, um, there must be uh, 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 consequences to our actions, God is about restoration. God is about forgiveness. God is about rebuilding the relationship. And in some cases, in fact, in most cases, in the restoration phase, that which harmed us before will actually diminish and we become strengthened. Kind of like when a bone breaks. The doctors say that the bone is stronger where it knits back together and so it's less likely to break in that exact spot again. Um, and, and that seems to be the case when we... Uh, fallen and, and have spiritual skinned knees as it were as well we become stronger 
for the uh, for the journey. And so, um, even though judgment can be harsh at times, it can be painful to be sure. Um, in the end, if we will press into the Spirit of God, continue to be faithful to Him, faithful to His Word, uh, continue to be obedient to His Word, then um, we're going to find ourselves in a much better place on the other side. Again, consequences aside. So let's turn back to my commentary. Uh, if you Again, if you want details about the, um, the recollection of their wanderings, uh, look at last week's parasha, which is the very last portion of the book of Bamidbar, which is Parashat Masa'e. Now, the title of the first portion in the book of the Varim takes its name from the title of the book, which is typically just like every other opening parasha of the Torah. The very first Torah portion in Genesis is called Breshit, named after the very first word in the Bible itself. Likewise, the very first portion of the book of Exodus is named Shemot. And as well, the first portion in the book of Leviticus is named Vaikra. And we also saw that the first portion in the book of Numbers is adequately named Bamidbar. And then as well, here in the book of Deuteronomy, the first portion is named Devarim. It's kind of helpful little tidbits to pick up here and there little nuggets of um, trivia that uh, some of you so uh, are, are so happy to pick up here and there. I like them as well, too. That's why I uh, share them with you here in these commentaries. Now, this first parasha will function primarily as an introduction to this fifth book of Moshe. So, um, I can tell you right up front, this is going to be probably the shortest Torah portion I've written. It really is literally about three pages in written length, so we're talking maybe 15, 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes max for the audio version. And then um, what will end up happening is as we get deeper into the book and there are more details to share, more uh, information that I'd like to uh, pull out of the portion, then uh, my commentaries will start to get lengthier. So enjoy the break while you have it, while you get a short portion here. Um, first, let's do some historical background behind this book. It's quoted by the modern rabbis. Okay. This initial portion will be very light, so take a break from the scholarly approach and enjoy the fascinating insights. Now let's start with, again, one of my favorite modern rabbis by the name of Rabbi Aaron Tendler. And um, the group he is with is Project Genesis. You can reach them on the internet at www.torah.org. Um, a great website, great resources. Uh, I'm so glad for the advent of the Internet. I know there are some people who have struggles with self-control. Uh, particularly, I, I have some male friends who have troubles. Uh, Christian men, godly men, uh, biblical men, who, who have trouble controlling um, where their mind wanders off to when they get onto the Internet. Because, you know, the Internet can be a great resource tool, and at the same time, it can be a very detrimental trap for, uh, for a godly man. And so if you are of the um, persuasion where you can control yourself on the Internet and you'd like to go browsing around the Internet for resources, well then, um, this is one of those websites that if you're interested in Torah Nuggets... Now, this is not a Messianic site, Torah.org as are many of the other resources that I'm um, fond of going to, OU.org or um, um, Tanakh.org, um, uh, Chabad.org, and things like that. Um, uh, many of these websites are main, um, uh, managed and maintained, run and maintained by normative Jewish people, well-meaning Jewish people, um, many of them with no axe to grind against Messianics. Uh, but the point is, um, if you're looking for Christian literature on these websites, you're not going to find any of it at all. But that doesn't mean that they cannot be helpful. 
because the 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 uh, Jewish people have been in possession of the Torah and the Tanakh for centuries before the Christian Church, as it were, came along and began to study it. And so there are valuable insights that we can pick up if we will just look for them. I know, I understand. Sometimes you got to wade through the the, the, the the stuff that that's not pertinent for your study. Um, be disciplined and be able to get through it, and and, and uh, you, the reward on the other end is is quite great. So let me just pull uh, a quote from their website. I did not give you a footnote to this. It's it is on the website. Um, let's just read the quote. In the first four books, God spoke directly to Moshe. And Moshe repeated God's words to the Jews while he was still within the context of receiving God's prophecy. Uh, what they're trying to introduce to us, let me just pause and interject. What they're trying to help us understand is the, um, the style and the language that the first four books find themselves in when compared to this fifth book. Many of you may or may not know that the fifth book of Moshe has a slightly different approach when it comes to God speaking to Moshe and Moshe speaking to the people. Okay, um, So as they go on to explain, in the first four books, God spoke to Moshe, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe lemor, those Hebrew words, and God spoke to Moses saying, are the most oft-used words in the five books of Moshe itself, and God spoke to Moses saying. However, I'm sorry, they go on to say it was, it was as if God was speaking to the Jewish nation through the throat of Moshe. God spoke to Moses saying, and so when Moshe would open his mouth, it's not as if he was, he was just a mere puppet and God was manipulating his lips. Moshe had a will, Moshe has intellect, Moshe had a, his own um, um, feelings and thoughts on the matter, but God spoke to Moshe and Moshe conveyed the words as, as God explained to him, right back to the people. Moshe was God's prophet. He was his spokesman. So God spoke to the people. It really isn't the Torah of Moshe. It is the Torah of Hashem. We understand that. In the last book, God also spoke to Moshe. In this last book here of the Varim, God did speak to Moshe. However, notice the difference. Moshe repeated God's words to the nation sometime after receiving the the uh, directive from God. There's a There's a a lapse between when God would speak and Moshe would give it. And so, at the time of Moshe's delivery, God's presence had already withdrawn from Moshe and he was no longer within the context of receiving the prophecy. And so, for that reason, um, some commentators have noted that Moshe's discourse in the book of Deuteronomy, it's very short, by the way, um, it's, it's, it's not a long narrative at all. I, I think it takes place over the course of about 30 days, if I remember off the top of my head. It's not a long, I mean, we've got it written out in 34 or so chapters, but um, it's just a very short uh, uh, preaching, as it were. Some people have called it a preaching or a sermon. Um, it's broken up into a few parts, I think like three or five um, sections. Uh, and I'm pulling this off the top of my head because I don't have my resource in front of me that gives me all of these details. I'm not in a place right now where I'm sitting in front of my computer or nor am I, do I have that book in front of me. But um, the details surrounding the, the, the giving of Deuteronomy and the writing of it are very, very fascinating. Uh, at any rate, Moshe is not speaking... God is not right there in front of Moshe giving him the, the, the information to give directly to the children of Israel. He's, Moshe is not in a direct contact with... with, with um, uh, Hashem during the, dis, dis, the discourse that he's giving to Deuteronomy. Rather, Moshe received the words at a prior date, and then Hashem um, kind of, as it were, went back 
towards a place where Moshe could not, uh, back to a place, I should say, where Moshe was not interacting with him on a day-to-day basis or, or direct level. Um, the Spirit is still guiding Moshe. He is still the spiritual leader of the children of Israel, um, realizing, of course, that he's nearing semi-retirement and that he's going to be replaced. And I, I believe that Moshe suspects that it's going to be Yehoshua, Joshua, but nevertheless, Moshe pleads with God in the very last chapter of Numbers that we just read um, in Parashat Masa'eh. Um, I'm not so much concerned about myself going in the land. I'm paraphrasing what Moshe says. I'm not so much concerned about myself going in, but who will go with the people? You know, Moshe makes a last request um, on the people's behalf uh, to God as to who's going to lead them, even though I think in his heart Moshe already knows that Joshua has been being groomed for this leadership position. So those are some of the differences as we open up this initial commentary to this Torah portion. Um, Again, uh, notice the context of what Torah.org said, that last sentence there. At the time of Moshe's delivery, God's presence had already withdrawn from Moshe, and he was no longer within the context of receiving the prophecy. This does not mean that Moshe was not still God's spokesman, when it uses the word prophecy there, it's talking about the direct revelation as if I were standing before God, receiving the words from God, and then conveying these words uh, you know, almost simultaneously to the people or, or in a very, very short time period after versus here, um, uh, we've got a little bit of distance. In fact, they go on to conclude, in this regard, Divarim was heard by the nation in the same manner that all other subsequent prophecies were heard. And so they're going to compare the book of Deuteronomy to some of the other um, prophets who would later come into Israel's history. And what do they say? The prophet would receive a vision, and then after awakening from the trance, the prophet would decipher God's message, and then sometime later deliver the message to the people, end quote. And that's more or less how we have it today with God's modern prophets and teachers and pastors and rabbis and, and people in leadership. Um, at many times, they will re- they'll, they'll go into their quiet time. I know this works for me as well. I go into study mode. I go into to meditation mode. I go into uh, receiving mode where I will get quiet before God and I will wait on His Spirit. I will praise Him. I'll, uh, I'll worship. You know, maybe turn on some music or 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 read read some of the Psalms or or read different parts of Scripture. Um, get my mind and my, my and my body and my my heart into a place where I can kind of shove out, push out the the the, the, the day's distractions. Um, you know, the other voices that that clamor for attention inside my head. Um, get in a place where I'm not worried about the TV or 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 dinner or or the car, or the internet, or, or something like that. Get in a place where it's just me and Hashem. And in places like that, the Spirit of God can speak. Many of you know what I'm referring to. God can speak. And sometimes the messages that He gives us aren't utilized by us, especially if we're leaders, aren't utilized by us for, for days, or maybe weeks, or, or months. Or in some cases, God can give you things that don't come out for years later. Um, it's it's not to say that God's words aren't aren't powerfully needed at the time. Rather, the art of prophecy or the gift of prophecy or the the office of the prophet is not just what the prophet says; it's when he says it and how he says it. And so the Spirit of God determines all of that. Who are we to to uh, try and figure out when God's words should be spoken and when they should be received and things like that. Now, whether or not I agree with the entirety of the comments uh, made by um, 
by our rabbi here, Rabbi Tendler, um, concerning the reception of the revelation of Moshe. Again, we scholars must certainly agree to the pinpointed change of voices because in the um, in the previous writings um, we have first person voice. It's as if God was really speaking through Moshe's mouth. But then in this in in, the, in this last book we have second and third. Um, and Moshe's recall here in Devarim uh, changes voices. So, um, first, second, and third in the previous writings, and Moshe's recall here in Devarim. Now, consider another rabbi here, this time from Tanakh.org. We have Rabbi Menachem Libtag, and he makes these comments. Quote, In contrast to these four books where the story and or mitzvot are presented in third person, okay, that's, he's talking about Genesis through Numbers, where the story is presented in third person. All right, Third person meaning um, he said. So here's Moshe standing before God. God speaks to Moshe. That's first person, God said. And then Moshe speaks back to, to God. There's first and second person there. But then Moshe takes this word to the people. And when Moshe opens his mouth, he says, God says... And the God, the word God there, the the the, the to name, the, the the four letters Y H V H Yud Hey Vav Hey, that is the third person masculine singular. So Moshe is really saying he said. That's third person, right? First person is I. Second person is you. Third person is he. So I, you, he. Third person. So we got third person going on in Genesis through. Numbers. Now let's keep reading Rabbi Menachem Liptag. All right. In contrast, to the, in contrast to these four books, where the story are, where the story and the mitzvot are presented in third person, the style of Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, is very different. For it is written almost entirely in first person. Now, isn't that interesting? Yeah. The reason for this is quite simple. Sefer Devarim consists of a collection of speeches delivered by Moshe Rabbeinu before his death. Moshe Rabbeinu means Moses, our teacher, or Moses, our rabbi, is how it's quite literally translated. And so, he goes on to say, therefore, to understand Sefer Devarim, we must first determine the purpose of these speeches and how they relate to one another. To do so should be quite simple, as we need only to identify each speech and then read what it is about. To do so is a bit complicated, for to identify each speech, we must read through the entire Sefer and note the changes from the third person, in essence, the regular narrator, narrator mode of Chumash, that's, that's Genesis through Numbers. Is, that's, how, that's how Genesis through no, Numbers normally speaks. God says, I'm sorry, God speaks to Moshe and Moshe goes to the people and says, he said this, he said that. Third person narrative. That's how it normally works. But um, uh, like the rabbi is telling us here, in order to understand Deuteronomy, we really must read through the entire book and note the changes from third person, where Moshe is recalling what God said, to first person, in essence, in essence, the direct quote of Moshe Rabbeinu himself. So that's what ends up happening, is we have these changes going on, where Moshe will say, well, God said this, blah, 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 and then I say, blah, 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 blah. Now, um, he goes on to um, challenge us, if you have ample time and a Tanakh Korin handy, a Tanakh Korin, by the way, is a, a style of Tanakh um, where there, there's a slightly different um, um, style of it put together. Maybe I'll go into detail more about that a little later if I can, if I can remember. If I, if I can get in front of my computer, then you'd understand. Um, Rabbi Menachem Libtag goes on to say, I highly recommend that you try this on your own. If you're short on time, you can cheat, and he gives you a few examples. He says you can cheat by reading at least chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, chapter 4, verses 40, through chapter 5, verse 2, and verse 26, 
uh, let's see. Um, uh, let me try that again. Uh, ch yes, chapter 4, verses 40 through chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 26, verses 16 through 27. Uh, gosh, I think I have a typo here. 26, 16 through, oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 26, verse 16 through chapter 27, verse 2. As well as verse, as well as chapter 28, verses 69 through chapter 29, verse 2. And, um, chapter 30, verses 19 through chapter 32, verse 1. There we go. It was no typo. Noting the transition, if you, when you look at these passages, note the transition from the third person to the first person, and hence where and how each speech begins. Okay? And that's going to help us out. Let's continue. So, how does all of this information help you and me, the average readers? Okay? How does it help us? Well, by understanding the historical, linguistic, and stylistic approach to any given book or text, I believe that we can begin to understand its message in a more theologically correct way. In other words, if you're doing a Torah study and you're reading the Bible and you want to figure out, well, let me just put it this way, you want to learn a little bit more about how the book is uh, written, why it's written, and the impact on its readers, you really need to do what's called a, a structural analysis of the book first. You need to figure out the who, what, when, where, why, and how. You need to figure out the genre, the style of writing, the person's writing, who they were writing to, the historical background behind the writing. Was it written when Israel was at war? Was it written while they were at peace? Was it written while they were wandering? Was it written while they were in the land? Um, Things like that will help you gain a greater appreciation and a more accurate exegesis of the passages in question. And what we're really talking about is that context helps us determine what the books are about, what the letters are addressing, the situations they're, they're trying to address and things like that. This is particularly germane to um, reading, for instance, Paul's letters. If you do not understand what is driving Paul to write the way he writes, for instance, his, um, his rhetorical style, his, um, his, his tongue-in-cheek style sometimes, his, uh, 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 you know, his, um, his irony, as it were, um, if you don't understand these things, then you'll fail to understand his, his warnings, his prohibitions, and things like that. So in some cases, a misunderstanding of any of these important areas will cause us to misunderstand the author's true intent behind any given text. So my, my point here is this. As Bible students, let's approach the text with some caution, shall we? Okay. I want to close my commentary by talking about the most important word you'll ever encounter in the Bible itself. Since the name of the book is called Devarim, which means words, I want to talk about the most important word who has ever existed. And his name is Yeshua. This next and last section of my commentary is entitled Yeshua, the Living Torah. Now what I want to do is I want to close by quoting a few familiar verses from the Apostolic Scriptures. Um, in, in these verses, we're going to see that the word, and when I say word now, I mean capital W-O-R-D. The word is identified in a way that was most certainly shocking to the average first century reader. And I bet you it's still shocking to many Jewish people today. In fact, we know it is. Now the verses in question are John, Yochanan, chapter 1, verse 1. And then I want to jump down to uh, Pasuk 14, verse 14. Let me read this first in English. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. End quote. That's verse 1. 
Look at verse 14. The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw his Shekhinah, the Shekhinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth, end quote. Now, the word Shekhinah, just so you know, is not actually found in the Bible itself. The word Shekhinah is a term that the rabbis have coined to explain the glory, the manifest presence of God, the visible presence of God that is ordinarily invisible. When our eyes interact, our ears comprehend, our, 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 our senses pick up the, the, the manifest presence of God. That's why we say manifest presence of God. That's the Shekhinah, okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to read these words in Hebrew for you. And the reason I want you to read, I want to read it in Hebrew is because I want you to listen for the Hebrew word davar. Okay? Davar is the Hebrew word word. Listen to these same verses, these same two in Hebrew, okay? Beshit haya hadavar. Vahadavar haya im haelohim. Veelohim haya hadavar. That's Pasuk 1. And the uh, next Pasuk, verse 14, reads this way in Hebrew. Hadavar nihye basar. Vashachin Botochinu Vaanachnu Rainu et Kvodo Kvod Ben Yahid Milfne Aviv Male Chesed Veemet. Now the transliteration from the Hebrew is mine, by the way. If you'd like to know where I got the Hebrew translation of those verses, because most of you are picking up figuring out right now. I thought those verses were originally written in Greek. You're right, they were. You can buy a Hebrew translation of the New Testament in many Bible bookstores these days, okay? As we can see, as I conclude to my commentary, as we can see, the word davar is none other than Yeshua. He is the word that existed before all other words. And these words, this, these, these davarim, are the very image of God, veiled in flesh and clothed in grace and truth. And so the words that we read, because he is the word made flesh, it's not as if the Torah is Yeshua, but the very words of God as penned by the writers of the Bible, the 66 authors of the book, these words are the self-disclosure of God. And as such, since Yeshua is the image of God and his very God himself, then the words of the Bible, the Devarim, are in fact the Master himself. Okay? Alright, may we appreciate the written word of God as we seek a stronger and closer relationship with the living word of God. Amen? Amen. Now the closing blessing for our commentary is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu torat emet vechaye olam nata batochinu Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. With that, I bid you all Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, 
and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh to state it succinctly Torah observance is a matter of the heart always has been and always will be my name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi the intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley for information on contacting Ryan you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.